just a reminder uh, what we uh, review. Um, I think it's important to look at reviewing. Oh, actually, tonight um, I'm going I'm, I'm to state first what we're going over for projects. Um, so the last few weeks, I want you guys to know I'm setting things up for a reason. Uh, we want to look at a biblical view of everything because I feel like, um, and, and some of you guys who I talk about apologetics can might attest to this. Um, if you guys gone out, evangelized, you probably see other believers sometimes give a Christian view or defense. But also, if you have the wrong theology, strange theology, then it also sets it up where you defend Christianity a certain way. Okay, so we want to actually lay the foundation for the last few weeks and even this week. Um, this is technically our fourth session on uh, really a biblical view of all these foundational matters. Before next week, we're going to look at the more philosophical part of, you know, what is a worldview. And then after that, we're going to actually be constructing, uh, deconstruct or, or refuting um, unbelieving worldview. Specifically, uh, we're going to be looking at atheism and also other things before we even look at even other uh, um, even messianic prophecies and things of that nature okay so today we're going to be looking at a biblical a bible's view of unbelief i titled this lesson is a bible's view of unbelief we have to ask the question what does god thinks about unbelief okay now what you think about unbelief will determine will shape how you go about defending the christian faith okay if you think unbelief is a respectable position girls let's you know, we're doing Bible study, okay? If you think unbelief is a respectable position, that would change the way you deal with the subject of unbelief. By the way, the Bible teaches all believers would always be gentle and respectful, okay? Uh, when we engage in apologetics. But that does not mean when it comes to actual content of belief itself, how, what do you think about it will shape. And what better way to ask this question is to say, what does God think about unbelief, okay? What does God think about unbelief, Okay. Um, so I'm going to review just real quick uh, our four sessions that we've looked at um, last week was a little bit different because it was resurrection near getting close to resurrection uh, Friday and correction uh, Good Friday and resurrection Sunday we did a special on what messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter nine okay but today we're going to be looking uh, picking this up in our uh, sequential series okay this is our fourth session is if you remember the first week we saw that we had to defend the Christian faith. That this is a duty and also a privilege for the Christian. Right? We see the definition and the duty of apologetics. That was the first session. Then we saw the second session is we cannot be neutral. That was very important because um, I feel like we're chopping trees. And where you chop the tree is going to slant towards a specific dire direction. We saw that if there's no neutrality with the second session, that means we have to do apologetics in a way that is going to be conscious, that we always are going to be going faithful to the Word of God with Scripture. We always take God's view of things, okay? Um, when we see there's no neutrality, that was the second week. Then we saw the third session, is we need it in light of this, we have to have a biblical view of faith and reason. Do you guys remember the different models? Some people think faith and reason uh, go against each other. Um, I think most Christians would say faith and reason does not, but then some would see uh, faith always rests on reason. And then some sees that uh, reason always rests on faith. And the question is, what is the right relationship? And my view is this. Uh, most things we believe in, we b depend on faith. Uh, uh, we, uh, question. Most things we believe in, we have faith in, we trust in, that it has a foundation of reason. There's, there's grounding or basis for why we believe this. But even reasoning itself, the process, assumes certain things that you have faith in, which we call the ultimate faith, what we call presupposition. I'm using a very narrowly defined term using a, a philosophical term of presupposition, which is different than saying assumption, okay? It's more than just mere assumption. But these are assumptions, uh, beliefs we have that is foundational for everything else to make sense of reasoning process and human experience we call presupposition, okay? So in light of that, then, today we want to see, okay, if we have a right view of belief and reason down, then, then we say, okay, a corollary of that is what does what does God have to think about what does God think about unbelief? Okay, so we're not going to approach this in a neutral way of say, hey, what 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 do we think unbelief? We're going to actually say consulting the Bible because this is going to still be a Bible study. What does the Bible say about unbelief? And what does the Bible even say about the amount of evidence that He's given about Himself? Okay, so tonight we're going to be uh, having four points for tonight's message. How many points? Uh, four points, okay? Uh, these are going to be the four points We're gonna, uh, in order to have a biblical view of unbelief. And three of these points is really looking at what the Bible says about how much evidence is given, okay? How much has he has revealed about himself, okay? And I think this is going to be important because I think a lot of times 
Um, if we don't have a biblical view of apologetics, you'll see things sometimes in certain different schools of apologetics. They'll say things, well, God's evidence is not that clear, but we're trying to make the most out of it. Okay, or we see there's enough evidence. We don't ha have enough evidence, but we're going to take a leap of faith and make an irrational jump. But no, we're going to see and say, what does the Bible say about how much he's revealed himself? Okay, that's going to shape the way we do our apologetics. And then, uh, and then from there, also even the nature of unbelief. Okay, so these are our four points. Point number one is we're going to see creation attests that the biblical God exists. Creation attests that the biblical God exists. Okay. Creation attests that the biblical God exists. Point number two, the word of God is self-evidencing. Point number two, the word of God is self-evidencing. Okay? The word of God is self-evidencing. Okay? Point number two, the word of God is self-evidencing. Point number three, Christ is self-evidencing. Christ is self-evidencing. Okay? Each one of these could be... Subjects of, man, entire chapters in books, in apologetics books, but we're going to try to distill it, okay? Um, but point number three, Christ is self-evidencing. Uh, self and point number four, God's description of unbelievers. God's description of unbelievers, okay? Uh, I'm not going to involve in my own opinion of character assassination of unbelievers, but we want to say, what is God's view of unbelievers in light of all these three points being true? Okay, uh, point number one again, creation attests that the biblical God exists. Point number two, the word of God is self-evidencing. Point number three, Christ is uh, self-evidencing. And point number four, God's description of unbelievers. I set it up this way is because in light of all these three things being true, of how much he, uh, powerful of an evidence he's revealed himself, then it makes sense that God is not just only name-calling non-believers, but it's really the his true evaluation and really an objective evaluation of non-believers in light of the evidence that he has revealed clearly okay um uh, with that and by the way uh, there's no um neutrality non-believers and believers were either for god or non-believers would say okay uh, from other passages like ephesians four seventeen, their minds are dark and their hearts are darkened and they're going to value evidence a certain way so that's why we want to begin with the bird's eye views of God's word. Before then, from next week on, we're going to be engaging in looking at worldviews. What is a worldview next week? And then we're going to do a worldview critique of atheism and hopefully other worldviews too. And then before we even look at even discussion, for instance, of messianic prophecies and other um, aspect of defending the faith. Okay. So in light of this, okay, let's uh, in looking at this with point number one, creation attests that the biblical God exists. Okay, that is when we ask God and say we ask God and then we see the answer from God from God's word. How do we know that God exists? The Bible says God's word Himself interpreting creation says that creation actually points us to God and not just a generic God, but the biblical God. That exists, okay. Turn with me real quick to Psalm 50, verses 6. Psalms 50, verses 6. When we have Psalms 50, verses 6 open, could I have Chris be my reader for tonight? And then the next reader I'm going to ask will be Eric, okay. Psalms 50, verses 6. Psalms 50, Psalm 50 verses 6. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Amen. Okay. So here it says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. I like this verse because it says that the heavens is actually giving us information. We know the heavens is giving us information because it says the heavens declare. It's almost as if it's like giving verbal propositions. In other words, it's giving actual truth claims. Okay. Things that um, have value of uh, truth value, whether it's true or false. Okay. And notice what is the content of the truth that's given. The contents it says, it goes on and says, His righteousness for God Himself is righteous. So the actual content it reveals is His righteousness. And if you guys remember when we did the systematic theology study of God's attribute uh, about a year ago, around this time we did remember almost a whole year long study. We looked at His righteousness as what? The judicial aspect of God, okay? The Hebrew word there is Siddiq. Uh, which is showing that he is his uh, more righteousness in aspect of God being judge, that he has a say over whether people is right or wrong, because he 
is one that gives us the law of God and also is the one that adjudicate, that is, he's judge. After saying that he, the skies tells us he's righteous, notice it goes on and says, for he, he, God himself is judge. So we see these truths, these twin truths, that he's righteous. Um, how do we know he's righteous? Because there's something about heaven we look at and we say that, hey, he should be the one that God is judging. Of course, God has revealed his laws in his word, okay? And there's something here, and I want to make this clear, that God's word, when it's introduced this, this is not just only a, dar, uh, a correction. A deist God, a God in general, that's a blind watchmaker, make creation. But there's a more dimension to him, that when you see the skies, you should know that God is righteous, that he has a right to be a judge over you, okay, with this. Usually a lot of the time with a lot of... Um, Various conception of of natural theology. Sometimes people would say, oh, well, it just barely reveals he's God. But I think the scripture reveals that. No, it, it, God's interpretation, it reveals a lot more than people realize. And also, it by the way, it's never in a way divorced from the rest of God's word. Because besides being judged, we also know he's given us his laws. Yes? Through verbal proposition called the scripture. Okay? Of, of who he is. Okay? So we see here. Uh, and by the way, isn't it also, if you notice, in, in a lot of culture, we often think of the heavens as what? As as involving divine God, right? And also, even as well, not only God with some g- generic idea of divinity, but also as well that God is the one who, above us, being divine, means that He is the one that's righteous and judge who we appeal to. In Chinese, what is one of the ways we ca- talk about God? What do we call Him? In Chinese, in Mandarin. Anyone want to unmute to inform and enlighten us? Hui? What's one word people use to talk about God in Mandarin? What is that word called? Just curious. Uh, there are two words. Okay. Shan Di. Mm-hmm. And then one is called San Shen. Okay. And in the things of God, we say Tian also, right? So there's an idea affiliated with the skies or the heavens, okay? Thank you, Hui, for filling that in. Uh, I'm not a Mandarin, native Mandarin speaker, okay? And even in, in even in American, or correction, in the Western tradition of uh, English tradition, right? You think of, you guys ever read John Locke, Second Treatise, right? Um, he talks about, which I, I think, uh, I actually think it's not just only enlightenment thought that feed into it. I actually think it's Scottish covenantal. Reform thought that fed into his idea of limited government and everything else. But that's another sermon another time. But in there, he also talks about, hey, what happens when the government is bad and everything else? He talks about appealing to heaven, okay, to judge, okay? This is not just only in, this tradition also is appeals even in Chinese classical thought in terms of government, of unjust government, and sometimes it's appeal to heaven that is shifting a new dynasty, right? So I just want to say east or west, this there is this tradition of this idea that manifests itself as the idea that God's, you know, with the heavens being invoked. And with that is also we get that idea somehow. Um, even non-believers get this idea that the heavens declare his righteousness, that he is the one that judges. Okay. Um, but of course, non-believers nature is we like to twist things, even our sinful nature, like to twist things according to our worldview of an idol. Okay? But here we see um, this that the heavens declare not just a God exists, but even the fact that God is righteous and that He is judge. In other words, there's content to this God that we see. Okay, um, let's turn also as well to Psalms 19. We've looked at Psalms 19 early before when we looked at no neutrality, but I want to look at this point here. Um, Psalms 19 verses 1 to 4. When we turn there, uh, verses 1 to 4, I know this is a bit longer, but Eric, if you could be my next reader. Or uh, the reader for this passage. The next one, I want to ask if it's possible to read next. Um, will be uh, Hannah. Oh, correction, Abigail will be next one. I'm sorry. Okay, after this. So for now, Psalms 19, verses 1 to 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their light has gone out through all the earth, and the, their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent 
Yeah, amen. Okay. So we see here, um, like I said before, you know, like notice the content that creation is is actively telling us about God. It says in verse one, the heavens tell, right? This is a reminder from last time, right? Verses second line of verse one, the uh their expanses declares second line of verse a uh, first line of verse two says pours forth speech, second line of verse two is reveals knowledge, okay? Uh, what truth does it tell us? We see verses 1, right? The glory of God and the works of His hand. By the way, this knowledge, could we escape it? Um, verses 3 shows we cannot escape it because it says there's no speech nor their words. Their voice is not what heard. So in other words, um, it's all over the place um, and it's uh, prevailing all over. You cannot run away from it. By the way, even if you close your eyelids, right? That eyelid that you close, you might see it's all dark, but that is still God's creation of his of the eyelid that you have um so we can never run away so i think even a closed eyelid shows even the wonderful design of god we cannot run away from this fact that god is what that he has revealed himself and attests himself in so many ways in all creation that he's revealed um to us uh, that he exists okay so um and of course, this is a biblical God that's tied to the Word of God, right? Because in verses 7 to 14, it reveals that He is Creator, okay? So let's turn to the next one, okay? Um, if you guys can, um, okay? So if you guys could uh, turn with me real quick um, to uh, Acts, okay? Uh, Abigail, could you come up here real quick? Acts, uh, Acts 14, um, okay? Acts 14, verses uh, uh, 17 is where we're going to be looking at, okay? Acts uh, 14, verse 17, if you could come up here and read for us, okay? Acts 14, verse 17, okay? Acts 14, verse 17. Would you be able to come up and read from my version? Okay. Or your version? Go ahead. New King James Version. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts of food and gladness. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so it shows here that he did not leave himself without a witness. That, you know, all of God's common grace. Um, I mean, we're not going to go into in, in, in depth, but if you really want to read someone that really goes into all the theology of common grace, and we've gone over a little bit of that, I always recommend a Cornelius Van Til. Um, I think he's hard to read. His book is called Common Grace. Um, he has multiple ones, um, but the book Common Grace is a compilation of Common Grace in the Gospel and all the other smaller essays. Um, but I feel Van, Cornelius Van Til, who is the father of the apologetics method that I, that we're going to be going over, called Presuppositional Apologetics, I feel he's very hard to read. He's a Dutch Reformed guy, um, writing in English, thinking in Dutch. Um, but nevertheless, I feel like there's so much reward in in, in trying to unpack in what he's trying to say. So... Um, with this, we see one of the. This is a biblical teaching where we see that even when you enjoy the things of life, that's a testimony of God's what grace. Okay, so um, I know Mandy joined in. Hello, Mandy. Okay, so we're uh, looking tonight um, just to review for those uh, joining in. Uh, we're looking at a biblical view of unbelief. We're laying all this foundation. This is foundational for our apologetics because we can, uh, if we're going to defend our faith. And also go after unbelieving worldview. We need to actually say, what does God think about unbelief? So uh, we're looking so far. The first point is creation attests that the biblical God exists. Okay, so we're going to look at four points. The first three points we're going to see of what it, that God actually says. He's given evidence that, of things that are true. And then the fourth point is, in light of all this, what is God's evaluation of, of unbelief? Before we actually go over other looking at what's worldview and do critiques and things of that nature, okay? So Acts 14, 17 shows clearly that God's creation attests um, to the fact that God exists. And the one that I love the most in the New Testament that I think shows the crystal clarity, and not only that, but even also the evidential value of creation, like how much of, of his attest, um, how much did God give proof that he exists so much that even to the point of what is this um, epistemic status and the even the ethical status of non-believer is found in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. If you guys could turn to Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20, okay? Rebecca, could you be my happy motivated reader to read for me Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20? The next reader afterward, I want to ask if possible, would be Mandy um, to be my next reader. Okay, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Amen. Okay. Thank you for reading this. Okay. Thank you, Mandy. So we see here, um, verses 19, I want to zoom in this, because verse 18, we'll talk more about this when it talks about... Um, God's description of unbelievers. But here in verse 19, it says that God is, um, had made things evident within them. That is within uh, even individuals, okay? And God has made it evident to them, okay? And of course, in verse 18, the heavens even reveal the, the wrath of God, okay? And we're all around this. And in the verses 20, it goes on and says that the creation of the world is an invisible attribute. That's his, and it lists some of these attributes. Things like His eternal power, Things like his divine nature has been uh, clearly perceived, like being understood, like they have enough to know. And notice in terms of how much did he attest himself is the non-believers would have no excuse, okay? Would have no excuse, okay? Um, there is no excuse um, to, for them to say, oh, I don't believe in God or God, you have not given me enough to know. Okay, that's why there's even the wrath of God is being revealed, okay, uh, with that. So that if that's point number one, is we see that creation attests to the biblical God exists. Then we go to point number two. The Word of God is self-evidencing, okay? Uh, why we're looking at all this, again, remember, is we're looking at the first three points is to show us that what is God's evaluation of the evidence like we're asking the question, did God reveal evidence? After we know already last time, what is that there's a relationship of faith and reason? Then we have to ask objectively, hey, you, God, who's the one who's giving you evidence, have you given evidence of yourself? And what is that nature of the evidence? So well, point number two is the word of God is self-evidencing. The word of God is self-evidencing. Um, self-evidencing, or another way of saying it in some of the uh, writing, if you look at the theological literature, is that God is word is self-attesting okay self-attesting could have two aspects to it that god identifies things as his word and also secondly that the word of god that i'm going more for the dimension that once he attests that there's a sense where you should know it's god's word because god says this is his word but that could be really complex um because some people think it's just a cartoon version a two-dimensional <coughs> things like okay a writing says it's god's word therefore you believe it i think there's a sense that's true if God says it, but there's also ways that he sets a criteria up to give evidence of himself about his own word, but he's still speaking about what's a criteria of his evidence in ways that's still supernatural and pretty amazing, okay, also as well. So there's not a cartoon version of self-evidencing, but first and foremost, to see that the word of God is self-evidencing, I want to make this interesting observation. Um, we're going to go um, first and foremost to the New Testament, okay? With Jesus giving a parable, um, if you guys can't, let's turn real quick with me to Luke 16, verses 27 to 31, okay? This is a little bit long. This is in the middle of this parable, but Mandy's going to read for us Luke 16, verses 27 to 31. The next reader I want to ask next is Jesus. I don't know if you're still eating dinner. Um, if you can read, give me a thumbs up. If you can't, give me a thumbs down, okay? Cool, good to go. Okay, Luke 16, verses 27 to 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen, okay? So Jesus here is giving a parable about Lazarus that begins in verses 19 and the rich man, okay? Two different lives in contrast to each other. And when they die, Lazarus goes, in verses 22, the afterlife to Abraham's bosom. I don't think right now for New Testament believers after Christ has died and resurrected, we go to Abraham's bosom, we go to heaven directly. Right? Absent with the body, present with the Lord. But it, it, I think in biblical time, um, I don't want to get into this. My view, at least my understanding of Jewish eschatology before was everyone's in this waiting. There's two wings. 
one for the believers and one that's not, okay? Um, the believers one is called Abraham's bosom. So here we see the um, the rich man, turns out, he is being judged, right? He is waiting for the judgment. But even here we see in verses 24, he's asking for mercy. He's talking to Abraham. And Abraham is, um, you know, and then he actually, what we just read from Manny verses 27 is, he's begging Abraham. It's like, hey, could you send the poor man, Lazarus, to go and to warn my brothers? By the way, isn't it interesting? Here's this rich man that still think he can boss around <laughs> this other uh, person, okay? Which is probably reveals the state of unbelievers, that when they're judged, it is, it is a, it is righteous judgment. It's not as if when they're there, suddenly they have everything to become a saint. Like everything they do is right. No, they still have very unbiblical thought, very unbiblical sins, also as well. And if you look at verse twenty-seven, he's saying, "Hey, he's begging, hey, send to my fathers to warn my five brothers." Okay, so they would not go to this place of torment. What does Abraham says? Abraham says, "Hey, no, they already have. It. There's something sufficient enough." Of a warning. What is that warning? It says, the Moses, the prophets, which is what? The scriptures. The Moses is the law, the first five books, the law of Moses. And the prophets is the second part of the Jewish scripture, what they call the Tanakh, okay? Which stands for Torah, the Nevi'ims, uh, and the Keti'ims, okay? Um, which is the law, the prophets, and the writings, okay? Um, so we see here, and he's saying, hey, these things... Are enough of a warning. And notice in verses 30, this man disputes him. He says, no, I'm going to make an evaluation that is a stronger apologetics, a stronger ap uh, evidential value of someone being dead and raised from the dead. A resurrection is a powerful evidential value. Okay, verses 30. Now, I don't think, I think there is an evidential value of someone raised from the dead. Uh, obviously, Christ being raised from the dead is the truth, which is dripping with so much irony that Jesus Christ is telling this parable. But notice which one has a stronger evidential value is in verses 31. Abraham, and again, God's, uh, Jesus is putting the words of Abraham almost as um, the one giving the truth here is this. Ending with this last line of truth is that if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not be persuaded even if someone raised from the dead. By the way, isn't that so true? I think this is dripping with irony. This is not just a parable. Later on, Jesus Christ will die. But there will be some that will still not trust in Him. I think they actually know. But as we go on later on, we'll point forward that the non-believers is somewhat in a strange predicament. Because there's a sense they know, but then they suppress it. So what is the state? Do they know or do they not know? Okay. And I would even say there's a sense where they're intellectually bipolar. But we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. But here you see the Word of God is self-evidencing. What do you mean by that? The Word of God saying something is already evidencing enough for people to believe in God with the eternal matters, to, to turn away from their sin, and even to trust in the Messiah. Okay? To trust in the Messiah. It's self-evidencing enough. And even more, uh, the evidential value of the Word of God is even more powerful than even a demonstration of a miracle of a resurrection. Okay? Because sometimes we think, oh, if there's only enough miracles, right? Um, if there's only enough miracles, but God's word says more than all of this, the word of God is, there is an evidential value in itself from the word of God. So this, I think, established the word of God is self-evidencing. By the way, if this is true, the way we do our apologetics is going to be probably different than the way popular apologetics is presently done in the current uh, climate of popular um, general Christian literature, Okay. Um, but when we see this, let me go further. I also think whenever God speaks, God himself interprets himself and his word and his action clearly enough that you should believe it just by seeing his word. There's something powerful and self-evident with it. Let's turn real quick with me to Exodus chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. 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 In the context, this is... Um, did I say Exodus 2? Oh man, I think I wrote the wrong... Exodus 3, I'm so sorry. Exodus 3. Okay, Exodus 3, verses 4 to 6. Um, I think I asked... Did I ask the next one to read is Jesus? Right? And then, James, if you could yes. be my next reader, give me a thumbs up if you can. Exodus 3, verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, 
God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand, you are standing as holy ground. Verse 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Amen. Okay. Uh, James, let me know if you could read thumbs up, thumbs down if you can. I know you have babies and things to take care of. Um, so... James, uh, correction, James, uh, Exodus, okay, here, remember where earlier there's a burning bush, and um, Moses goes, and he's trying to figure out what is that, what is that that's going on there, right, he doesn't know what it is, but as soon as a voice speaks, uh, and says, hey, this is, I am the God of Moses, some people say, okay, well, God still shows evidence, there's a burning bush and fire, that's true, um, I don't, for me, think that just because there's Things outside of his word does not mean it's not self-evident. But notice his interpretation of that is very clear, right? God's interpretation of what the burning bush is very clear. That he says, I am the God of your uh, father, the father, the God of Abraham. And by the way, the Moses says, oh, let me wait real quick. I want to see if the evidence demand a verdict. Did he do that? No, he's right away say what? Man, he hid and he was, there's something about God's voice that's very clear. That's self-authenticating, okay? Or another ways of saying is self evidencing with that okay i mean there's many other times and many other instances also as well that he does that okay uh so here we also see um also as well um if we if we could get turn also as well i also think even within there it's not as if because the next part some people might ask is well what about anyone could come over what about a joseph smith that says hey he just writes things down and therefore you got to go with it i also think god's word also gives criteria that he that people could come over and not just say, okay, therefore I says the word of God. But the criteria we still go by is still God's self-authorizing and self-authoritative word of how do you interpret and how do you even judge God's word is God's word. Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 21. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 21. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 18, verses uh, 20 to 21. Um, Hui, would you be able to be my happy, motivated reader to read Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 21? Yes, sir. Thank you. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say our prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Uh, and in verse 22 also as well. Oh. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So there's two tests. And by the way, this is God authorizing the test, right? Um, so we see here, so it's the word of God is still self-evidencing, even though he gives a criteria of evidence. How do you know someone is the word of God? Is There's two tests. The first criteria is, does it... Does it uh, deny or affirm previous revelation of God? Okay, previous revelation of God. Because the previous one, if someone comes and says, you know what, God's word says this, and there's many gods, and there's not one God, could you right then, right away, rule it out and say, this is not God's word? Yes, because that's God's own word authorizing and saying, hey, this is not the criteria. So there's a place for what is called in theology, biblical theology, antecedent theology. I'm a big antecedent theology fan by the way if you want to read more of that i think walter kaiser uh, lays that out so for me even the way i do biblical theology is often a hey, there's things that's revealed it hasn't fully disclosed but it's building upon that it's like a flower right you, you plant the seed and it grows like it, it goes on okay so that's the first criteria the second one is also if he makes prophecy and it doesn't happen guess what happened in fact the opposite happened it was not fulfilled there's no possibility of being fulfilled and guess what that is a criteria that God's word said himself and says, no, this is not it, okay? I want to go over this because the word of God being self-evidencing, sometimes people can have a cartoon version. It's two-dimensional. 
But there's a sense that it is true. God's word, whatever it says, is true. You, you could uh, know right away if it's God. Okay? And by the way, the response to that often is not just say, oh, God's word is haphazard. There's a sense of reverence and awe we should have and fear, okay, as we see in the context. But also the word of God, when it identifies, also sets criteria. How do we know it's his word that we could, in a way, recognize it, okay? So the word of God is self-evidencing. So in light of this, of course, there's all those messianic prophecies. I do think in presuppositional apologetics, there's a place for messianic prophecies, okay? There's a place for messianic prophecies in how we engage it. After all, Jesus himself and the apostles engage in that. But the way we present it is often we're going to be pressing the antithesis. We're not just presenting it in a way that's just neutral and say, hey, you be the judge of that. No, we're bringing in a razor uh, blade with the way we present in our philosophy of evidence with that. We'll get to that when we get there, okay? But uh, when we talk about, we'll hopefully devote a session of how do we give evidence as a presuppositionalist, okay? Um, so that's uh, point number two, okay? So if uh, point number one, again, uh, I know some join in later, uh, Caleb and Mandy, what we're doing, just a reminder for all of us too, is we're looking at a biblical view of unbelief. Uh, if last time we saw that what is God's word has to say about the role and relationship of faith and reason, a corollary of that is to say, hey, if this is the case, what is God's view of unbelief? And we began this by looking at the first two points. <coughs> Point one was, first three points we're looking at of our four-point thing is to say, what is, does God give enough evidence? If we go to God and God's the one that gave evidence, we want to say, what did he reveal it and is it good enough? And we've seen so far, point number one, creation attests the biblical God exists. And point number two, we'll just finish up. The word of God is self-evidencing. Okay, self-evidencing. And I do consider Messianic prophecy is part of that self-evidencing. And then now we're going to look at point number three. Um, Christ is self-evidencing. That Christ himself is also self-evidencing. Okay, let's turn real quick with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. Okay, we're going to be looking at three passages to show that Christ himself is self-evidencing. Even with meeting Christ, you should, there should be something that should be moved us that we should recognize the authority of Christ and that He is real, truly God and one who sent. Okay, could you guys hear me? Sorry, I was accidentally. Uh, okay, so if you guys can't, let's go to Matthew uh, 7, verses 29. When we get there, um, could I have um, Hannah? Could you be my happy, motivated reader in big girl voice? Read for me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. Want to be closer? Mm -hmm. So people can hear you. For he taught them as one having another and not as the sacrifice. Uh, uh, scribes. Scribes. Uh, no, yeah, not the sacrifice. I think that's a lot from the Passover. Okay, that's good. Okay, that's good. Okay. So, but everyone clapped and everyone was grateful. Or not everyone, but some. Authority. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. We, the reason, by the way, just to let you guys know, why do we include them for lighthouses? I also want to set a pattern that for kids, um, I know some of us, you know, we grew up in a certain culture where we want our kids to be super smart, right? I'm always amazed meeting some of the church kids. Like, man, um, you know, they're taking calculus in like sophomore year. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I feel so silly. But we want to raise them up. And hopefully for all of us, too, we want to raise them up uh, to know God's word. You know, even though they might not grab everything. Um, we at least we should challenge him, okay? So thank you guys for being patient with the reading of that, okay? So what we see here in Matthew seven twenty nine, notice Jesus' authority is very different than that of the scribes because when he was teaching, there's something that st Jesus is unique, okay? And I think his uniqueness had to do with his kind of authority that he has. I mean, I just still remember when I was a non-believer, the first time I read this, I was actually totally stunned just stopping in this verse. You know, I'm sure there was many other applications, but I remember just thinking there is something that is true, um, and I actually think I became a believer because I started reading the Bible. You know, I remember I got just uh, tell you my story a little bit. Um, at 15, I got expelled from high school. My sophomore year got kicked out. You know, I brought a knife to school. Silly thing to do. Right. So I had nothing to do. It was around the same time. One of my best my best friend, he was dating a, a Christian. OK, or, or so-called. Um, but it was a horrible thing. And the breakup was horrible. And back in the day where it was three way calling was just new as a teenager you know, as a kid in the 90s, we would call. And I'll be so bored because he'll call making fun of her about the Bible. And I'll just kind of laugh. And then one day, he just said to me, right before I got expelled from school, like the week before, he said, I want you to actually read the Bible for me. Could you read it and tell me of all the problem and error? And I remember thinking, saying, oh, yeah, I'll do it. And I had this Bible. 
I went to this VBS. I don't remember anything from the VBS other than the fact that they got a small little um, kid to stand on a table, right? Um, to be play the role of David. And then this tall girl who was like six feet something, she was supposed to be Goliath. And they and they had her throw something and they actually hit her or something. And she was like, oh, that actually hurt. And it fell down and everything else. And that's the only story. I had no reference. I, I thought I was so biblically illiterate. I thought that was Jesus slaying Goliath. So for many years, I thought that was, you know, from age five. But that one, that charismatic church, Pentecostal church, if there's one thing they did right, was when we left for that VBS, they gave me a whole entire Bible. And that Bible collected dust from 5 to 15 until one day my best friend, a non-believer, an atheist, said, could you read the Bible? And I opened it up, and I remember writing my journal on January 17, 1999. I said, hey, if this is real, you're going to have to show me that this is real, God. And I had that journal. I don't, I don't know where it's at anymore. And then two days later, I got expelled. And I was like, yeah, God must not exist. But then I can't stop reading the Bible. I kept reading. more. When I got kicked out of school, I had nothing to do. I read even more and more until on April 4th, 1999, Easter morning, I just thought, wait a minute. Reading, you know, pastors like this, it's like, wait, what is this authority? Why can I not stop reading? I guess I really do believe I'm a sinner. I am so in trouble. Man, if you are real, if Christ is real, and I do believe he's real, and you are authoritative, please save me from all my sin. And that was the beginning of my Christian life. So I do believe the word of God is self-evidencing, okay? The word of God is self-evidencing. The words of Christ. I mean, think about when Christ was dying. You know how there's so many sermons of Christ on the cross with seven words of Jesus. How could it be some crazy, heathen, Gentile, pig-eating, Gentile, Roman centurion believe in Christ? I mean, did he have a whole volume of God's word he studied? Did he do Bible study with what? You know, the rabbi study Bible? No, I don't know if he did that. I think there's something about Christ's word, self-evidence, and his work, self-evidence, that it present, that when presented, it took in the book of Mark, the first time you see someone that's a human being said, he is the son of God, not demons, but the first human being in the book of Mark is who? Is a Roman pig-eating Gentile soldier, a murderer, who sees the cross and sees, hears his word. It is self-evidencing. Okay, still we go further. I think his works is also self-evidencing. Okay, um, there's something looking at the work itself. You don't need other more chain reference of proof. It itself it is. Turn with me to John five thirty six. Okay, so he's a self-evidencing Christ. Turn with me to John five thirty six. Okay, John five thirty six. Uh, John five thirty six. I'm going to read this for the sake of time. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit more. John five thirty six. This is what the Word of God says. Okay, John five thirty six. It says, um, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me. The Father has sent me. Okay, so his work testify. And by the way, what is the lens you have to interpret this? Notice it says, the work that the Father has given me. What do we know? How do we know which one is his work? It's through the word of God, the Old Testament. When Isaiah 11 talks about, here we one that will be in coming into um, Galilee doing all these signs, this will be the one, okay? Freeing prison, all these things. That's how you know the work is. But when he does this, there's this aspect where the word of God coming together with his work, it's attesting, self-attesting that he is the Messiah, okay? Also as well, if you're still with me in John chapter 5, look with me in verse 39, okay? It says, you have searched the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So with the self-attesting, um, scripture that we already saw earlier, that also points us towards Christ, okay? That also points us to Christ. And also when he speaks himself, you should already recognize. In other words, these evidence, if you see this, I think just by Christ speaking about scripture, you should know he's the Christ. But yet at the same time, he, in other words, the evidence is so overwhelming is what I'm trying to get towards, okay? Uh, with this. So in light of this then, we go to point number four. What is then God's t- d- description of unbelievers? Knowing all these three points already, I think it's one that's very unfavorable in terms of the sin of unbelief. Turn with me to Psalms 14, verse 1. Psalms 14, verses 1. Okay, I think some of you guys chuckle. Ben Wartz, would you be able to read that? I think, uh, I don't know why, Psalms 14, 1, whenever I look at that, I always think of uh, of you in the sense of apologetics, not, not of you. Oh, Psalm. Psalm 14, verse 1. You could already do it in your memory. Okay, amen, okay. 
Obviously, it's quoted in Romans 1. Psalms 53 verse 1 uh, reproduces this also as well, okay? Um, and this is fascinating to me because it shows us what? That unbelievers are seeing the sin is seen as foolish. It's really seen as foolish. Now, the word foolish in Hebrew does have a moral connotation also as well, okay? Um, it is morally unrighteous, but also as well, it's irrational also as well with unbelief. If you guys could turn with me to Romans one eighteen. We want to see Romans one eighteen. I think goes into the the depths of the psychology of unbelief. Okay, Romans one eighteen. It goes into the depths of the psychology of unbelief here. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I believe in the Bible is is if I were to put it down is number one, the Word of God is self self evidencing. The Messianic prophecy just blows my mind away. Okay, but the second reason is also why I believe is this description. There's no, I actually think the most negative, pessimistic worldview of human nature is the scriptures. And it also, by the way, it does give hope, okay? There is this hope. It is through the gospel. He changed and regenerated, changes us. But it's also the most realistic about human nature, okay? Um, it's one of the paradox that worldviews that have a very utopian, utopian view of human nature and human community are some of the most evil in society, okay? And yet this word of God with the, the paradox is so dark of the human nature also is a source of so much hope also as well. Romans one eighteen says, The wrath of God is revealed in heaven against uh, all unrighteousness and un ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. That is, they're pushing it down. The truth that they're supposed to know, which shows that there's a, an unbelief, there's this almost a schizophrenic nature Right, um, they're non-believers, but then at the same time they know the truth. Right, um, with this, so we see here also as well. Oh man, there's so many more. Um, but also look with me in verses 21 to 23. Um, verses 21 to 23. Notice in their unbelieving, they're trying to do this thing where they know the truth, but they're suppressing it. So what does it come out like? Eventually, they have to make an idol. They have to direct that in some ways, but they have to make it reconstruct God according to their what imagination okay according to their magic in ways they domesticate god so that they won't be totally fearful verses 21 to 23 for even though they knew god they did not honor him or give thanks but they'd be futile and futile in their reasoning and their senseless hearts were darkened verse 22 claiming to be wise they became full and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible god for an image in the form of corruptible man kind of birds four-footed animals and crawling creatures okay so they're gonna make an idol but yet don't forget verses 21 oh correction verses 18 they actually do know the truth right and in the content verses 19 and 20 so the way if this is true this will shape the way we would do apologetics this will shape the way we would do apologetics if we go by what god's description of this is we have to i think most apologetics would agree that um to reject christianity is far more irrational than be than irrational. I think most evangelical apologetics method. But I think if we go fully biblical, I would even go one step further to be biblical that sometimes is contested and not as popular. I would actually go a different route, also say that we engage non-believers. Non-believers in some sense actually know there's a God and they suppress that. So the way we're gonna do my apologetics, not my apologetics, I think the biblical apologetics method in the way I would go about this is called presuppositional apologetics, which says that even the hardened atheists actually do know there's a God. He's not a believer in the sense he's saved, but yet he suppresses that truth. The knowledge he has is not a salvific one where he's going to go to heaven, but yet he knows enough there's a God, and we're now calling him out to show, hey, there's an inconsistency with your action or what you do. Okay, If I could give an example, and this is not original, this is uh, with Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson's PhD at USC, by the way. Um, wrote on the issue of uh, of suppression of truth for his uh, uh, thesis at USC, and he gives an analogy of like the example they could have like a mother who has a son, and the son is goes to school and is basically a bully. You guys ever have this before? I remember as a kid, always going to principal's office. I was always amazed at how some parents take the side of their kids, even though they're wrong. Because that was not my parents. My parents were. We're like old school. Whenever I go, like, man, they would beat me. And I'm like crying to my dad in Chinese in Hakka. Man, I was like, please don't beat me anymore because they're going to think it's child abuse and they're going to take you away. And my dad is like, no, because he's like old school Asian. Dog. He's like, no, I'm hitting you because I need to let them know. 
that I take this seriously so that you don't get in further trouble. And I'm like crying, and they're like, all they hear is like, you know, Chinese, and, and they hear child abuse, and I'm crying because I'm, I'm afraid I'll lose my dad. And then the others, you know, and then the principal's scared. She opens the door, and there's all these other school security comes over, and they're like, okay. And my dad's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Stewart, so sorry, my son, my son's so bad. Ah, hits me in the head again, okay? But I bring that up as to say that non-believers often sometimes what suppress the truth. Imagine a mom, what Greg Bonson gives the analogy is, here's a mom says, hey, you know what? This is, uh, my son could never do no wrong. She never done anything wrong. It's every bad school. Change schools every day, okay? And then guess what happens? He goes, transfer this ki- uh, to, uh, kids to a different school, and it's always everyone else's fault, but the son is good. But every night when he go- she goes to sleep, she clutches her purse really tightly. She takes the money out of the purse and puts it underneath her bed underneath her pillow to make sure her son won't steal. Now, in that, you see two, because you can't say she did not believe that her son, right? There's a sense she, she believes it strongly, but there's two. People could be so irrational that they could hold to two opposing beliefs and think that they believe in one when the action sometimes shows the other. So in terms of biblical apologetics, I would actually say we want to look at this by even showing what Scripture says of unbelief, okay? Now, I know we laid down a lot of Bible study, the next few weeks, eventually, we will now go into the nitty-gritty of apologetics with, with all that, okay? Let me stop at this point. Is there any questions and comments? By the way, hello, uh, Kofi, and also as, uh, Kike, and also Kaylee, okay, that joined in later. Any questions and applications? Um, I think it's really helpful to know, like, I mean, you just pretty much... Like, you spent the whole time giving us what the Bible says, and that makes it a lot easier when we are actually defending our faith that we do not have to... Next, like, you've given, given us, like... I mean, the Bible speaks clearly on these issues, so I think that's really helpful for when we actually do go to the streets. I remember before, you know, because me and you have the same apologetic method, we hold to it. Before that, I held to like a view that I always had to prove God existed, and I would never use my Bible to show that you know God existed. But you, you, I mean, as you demonstrated tonight, like there's proofs all over through the Bible that God has given as evidence, and He said, I mean, He said, I mean, 